1: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Piketty, and today I will be in conversation with Professor Elizabeth Seppi, author of the fascinating new book, Invisible Masters, Gender, Race, and the Economy of Service in Early New England, published by Dartmouth College Press in 2018. Professor Seppi is an Associate Professor of English at Portland State University. Invisible Masters rewrites the familiar narrative of the relation between Puritan religious culture and New England's economic culture as a history of the primary discourse that connected them service. The understanding early Puritans had of themselves as God's servants and earthly masters was shaped by their immersion in an Atlantic culture of service and the worldly pressures and opportunities generated by New England's particular place in it. Concepts of spiritual service and mastery determined Puritan views of the men, women, and children who were servants and slaves in that world. So too, did these concepts shape the experience of family, labor, law, and economy for those men, women, and children, the very bedrock of their lives. Thank you so much, Professor Zebby, for joining me today to discuss your thought-provoking new book.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jared. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Before we begin our discussion of the book, I was wondering if you could reflect on how you became interested in studying early Puritan religious and economic culture.
0: Yeah, it's not a straightforward story. <laughs> it was a surprise to me, um, having grown up uh, secular in the suburbs of Los Angeles, um, I um Took a class my master's year of graduate school um, at the University of Chicago to fill a pre 1800 requirement. Um, and that class was taught by Janice Knight, who's a scholar of Puritan literature, and it was called Typologies of Gender in Puritan America. And I, um, my experience of reading these Puritan sermons and kind of trying to get my mind around the, this Theology. It was like no, no other kind of intellectual challenge I've ever had in my life. Not even like community college physics when I was a senior in high school it seemed more like a kind of language I understood than these Puritan sermons. And I think I was just sort of taken by the the, the intellectual challenge of trying to to read my way into grappling with this radical difference. Um, of this worldview, and um, and also the beauty of the language, you know, that kind of went along with it. And one of the texts we read for that class was the uh, Samuel Willard's narrative of uh, the demonic possession of Elizabeth Knapp, who was a servant in his household. And um, I ended up writing my paper for that class on it. And it, it ended up being my master's thesis and a chapter in my dissertation. And so, I mean, it's really, you know, Janice Knight and Elizabeth Knapp that turned me into a scholar of of Puritan literature.
1: When you, you know, and, and learning the history behind the book itself is always so important for not only me, uh, I think, to understand, but also for our listeners. And so as you began the, the project um, and the ways in which it expanded and grew, I'm wondering if, if you had an idea of the gaps that you were seeking to fill in the existing scholarly literature and also how, how the answer to that question was informed uh, you know, over the process of writing the book itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, I wrote the book for so long or some version of it for so long that that question has different answers. But I know in its first form... you know, the uh, initial work that I did on NAP and um, and then the chapter in my dissertation, the, the kind of primary focus was um, trying to talk about intersections of gender and class or status, you know, thinking about, like, the kind of woman whose experience didn't often, uh, wasn't often preserved, you know, in narrative form. Um, and kind of you know the <laughs> trying to figure out or to use nap as a way of thinking through service and discourses of service as a, a kind of pre-modern or pre-capitalist analytic kind of for thinking about class you know because it, and, and just thinking about American literary history and I think just more in general you know people talk about class and it's through a Marxist lens and you know that it, it doesn't really apply to thinking about that period. So that was that was kind of the initial conversation that I thought I was having. And and even when I revised that work for a publication in American literature that that was kind of the angle, you know, it was like service servitude kind of had the signification that crossed, um, you know, between the spiritual and earthly realms. And, you um, uh, was an essential, you know, not just a legal status, but an essential discourse that helped us understand, um, how people understood who they were in this world, you know, in this, this social, very hierarchical world and, um, you know, what their, what their work meant, um, you know, to them and to their larger culture. But, um, you know, the, I still kind of never really had pressed myself to um you know, I'd make these kind of assertions about how um complex servant was as a spiritual signifier, but i i I have to say I didn't really have the evidence to bear that out. It was kind of uh, more. Uh, you know, based on instinct or, you know, something like that. And so when I returned to the project, um, uh, in to write the book version of it, I, um, I I let myself be more open, I, I realized that was the thing I needed to research, you know, exactly what did servant mean in spiritual discourses, you know, exactly how was it complex? What were the complications, you know, I, I needed to press myself to figure those things out. And so, you know, when I, when I did that, I I realized there were other gaps in the scholarship, you know, so there's not really any book that helped me figure that out. You know, it was, um, primarily taken as self-evident, you know, what servant of the Lord meant. Um, and it wasn't people who did work on servitude, didn't uh, really consider its meanings, you know, not at length in, um, in the spiritual realm. So I, 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 you know, one of the tricky things about the book was that there was no immediate interlocutor for me. Um, but I you know, I imagined it um, speaking primarily to people who were interested in Puritanism and you know early American lit tradition. Um, uh, but um, you know, a- in the course of writing the book, there was this sort of burst of um, you know, new scholarship on, the relationship between literature, between religion and the economy, um, and also renewed, um, wave of scholarship on racial slavery and servitude in New England. Um, and so I, I, as I was writing the book, I realized I, I, I was in conversation with those, um, you know, those scholarly circles as well.
1: Sure. And I think that was one of the interesting elements of reading the book and engaging with the footnotes uh, is the way in which you were working in the trenches of this history uh, at the same time as so many other scholars, right? So thinking about like Wendy Warren's work uh, on 17th century New England, but also Richard Bailey and John Wood Sweet and all of these other scholars who, in a way, um, you're all, you know, you're looking at very similar documents and engaging them in in similar ways, but just your, the analysis that you draw from them was so strikingly different. I mean, I was even thinking about, um, Lisa Brooks new book, our beloved kin and, and her really decisive reading of the lived experience of King Philip's war, but you know, how, you know, the captivity narrative of Mary Rowlandson and the other documents that you, you call from in your book, um, that you're all looking at them in such different ways. And yet, um, you know, the overarching theme of early New England religious and economic culture was at the heart of all of your work. It was just very interesting to see, you know, a a generation of scholars working together, but at the same time, um, you know, just the spate of publications that have come out in recent years, it's just been such an encouraging um, development, I would say, especially for me as someone who is interested in the subjects. Um, I'm wondering if you could Uh, if we moved into the introduction of your book, and you open it with the famed 17th century Puritan John Winthrop and the ways in which Winthrop intertwined Puritan theology and the economy of service in the creation of his acclaimed city upon a hill. And you write really brilliantly on page three that, quote, as lived metaphors, master and servant signified multiple spiritual and moral types, and their plasticity made them ripe for use in a moral vocabulary That accommodated the decisions godly men made in response to the pressures and opportunities of the Atlantic economy, decisions that profoundly changed what it meant to serve earthly masters and what it meant to be one. And so with this in mind, how did early New England settlers like John Winthrop and his contemporaries envision these visible and invisible worlds, and more importantly their roles as masters and servants within them? I guess I could pose it using your own rhetorical question that you you write on page five, which is, how did their understandings of themselves as God's servants affect how Puritans viewed those they served and those who served them?
0: Mm. Thank you for that question. Yeah. Yeah. Um... You know, I, I want to say also I borrowed this idea of lived metaphor from Holly Brewer um, in her brilliant book where she talks about child the child as a lived metaphor of obedience um, and a relation to authority. And I, I felt like once I I read her book, it kind of hit me like that is what I have been arguing about service. <laughs> um, you know that that um, it, it's not just that. The, the servants crossed from one realm to another, you know, between the spiritual and the earthly kind of realm. Um, but more that. It was that that the types of personhood represented in scripture, in fact, helped Puritans understand who they were in the invisible world, like who who were they in God's plan and how could they act in relation to God's will, you know, and and to whether they could know whether they're they were obeying his will and being who they meant, who God meant them to be right and i i think um that um you know the key is is in the the kind of way of puritans being in the world and knowing themselves to be you know both gods right that they, they thought of themselves as as god's servants but also as his children um and that um and they, they, those weren't just metaphors, like they weren't empty. You know, what it meant to obey like a servant and obey like a child, um, you know, the, those distinctions were absolutely essential to their, the their understanding of themselves as moral and spiritual actors in the world and moral and spiritual beings. So um, like, for example, in, the, um, you know, in covenant theology, and Puritan covenant theology, they um, believed that God made two covenants <laughs> with humans. <laughs> and the one, you know, Adam and Eve messed up. And the second one was the covenant with Abraham um, uh, the covenant of grace. So they conceived of the covenant with Adam as a covenant of works and the second as a covenant of grace. And, um, you know, God predestines under the covenant of grace, God predestines some human beings, the elect or saints for salvation by faith alone. Right? So what happens to works (laughs) Well, you know, you, they were to understand, right, that the the moral law, the covenant of works still applied to them, right? And in fact, it was God's gift of grace that enabled them to obey the covenant of works. And so the, in uh, Galatians chapter four, Paul gives this what he calls the allegory of the covenants, where he talks about there being the children of Sarah, the children of the free woman, and the children of the bond woman, right? So Isaac and um, Ishmael being symbols of these two covenants and the Puritan elect were to know themselves as the children of the free woman of Sarah, right there, that, that, Grace was a free gift from God. You know, they were not worthy of it, you know, and and their entire being was meant to to cultivate uh, thankful obedience for this gracious gift. But they were so... They were also meant to obey the moral law, right? And, um, but in the in the allegory of the covenants, in, in the allegory of the covenants, the the um, to obey the moral law only was to be a a bond person, was to be enslaved to the law right? If you think that you can just follow the moral law, and that is what it means to be a Christian, you're in bondage to the law, right? And so the key was to maintain this dialectic of obedience. So the child might inherit grace, but they still had to be moral, right? They, they still had to, to understand the, the, they, they were inside also a servant, you know, and, and then the servant on the other hand, you know, had to strive to obey like the child, you know, to work for love to, you know, in whatever degraded, um, social position one might occupy, you know, so, um, it, 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 they, they couldn't really understand what it meant to obey without these types, you know, and without thinking about the earthly hierarchies and this the scriptural types of master and servant.
1: Sure. And also just the ways in which both public and private forms of obedience were just so instrumental to the quotidian experience of, of Puritans and in early new england um and it's it's kind of interesting to think just in hearing you speak now um the ways in which the early historical scholarship and the literary scholarship really focused on like religion as one strand immigration as another strand but in in that in that you know regard there were you know indentured servants who traveled from uh you know england and elsewhere um and made their way to North America and eventually, you know, to New England um, and, and the ways in which just the, these very blatant connections, if you will, of, of a servants and servitude and the ways in which, you know, th- you know, the founding of our nation was very much bound up not only in unfree African and indigenous labor, but also in white indentured labor as well, but just the ways in which servitude had almost been um, written out of those narratives. It's interesting that for so long, there's just been such a fascination with New England as a you know a topic of scholarly investigation, but that so many scholars, I mean, fortunately for you, they they had, but it's it's quite interesting that they you know failed to make these connections otherwise explicit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think some of that is the influence of of the Weber thesis, you know, of with it, it's sort of um, you know, Wendy Warren kind of just takes it down, right? I mean, this idea that. Um, you know Purit- the, the, the determinism of free labor and the making of New England um, you know we, which also well I, I should bracket but I was going to say you know we we still learn that version like New England is where they were abolitionists you know the idea of the north as free and the south as 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 the place where slavery was or where servitude was um, you know still like reigns really in a lot of our historical narratives and so but in the case of Puritan New England I do think, it, you know, is just how influential the Weber thesis was, and kind of understanding, it's almost like, you know, just in under in, in understanding what they thought New England's relationship to markets and labor was. Um, and so some of the work is not just recovering, recovering the evidence of enslavement, um, and the critical role that that unfree labor played in the North so that it's not a difference between free and bound labor, but a spectrum of freedom and unfreedom that defined, you know, all labor. (laughs) Um, But also a question of, of like uh, getting past that paradigm, you know, that Weber paradigm is, was, you know, hard. (laughs) Sure yeah
1: it's it's that it's that quote from winthrop jordan i think it was a an article he published in 1961 it's like uh the question of um you know i think it was something along the lines of not why slavery existed in new england but why you know why they chose african servants to begin with like um that there was just this real and I still think today scholars of the of enslavement in the Atlantic world, there is this idea and understanding that servitude writ large in New England was unique in the in terms of the Atlantic world, but they often fail to explore its intricacies in a way that your work, as well as Wendy Warren's and others, in order to demonstrate the ways in which slavery and servitude were instrumental, not marginal, despite however you know few if you will you know new england only had between 2 to 3% of you know its aggregate population were enslaved that doesn't mean that there wasn't a significant contribution of these unfree laborers to the economic development and the sophistication of the new england economy in the 17th and 18th centuries it's just it's it's it's, it's almost as if the the wheels are still spinning for a lot of people but the tread is just not meeting the road quite yet even though it's you know it's been generations in the making in terms of the scholarship
0: that's um, true i'm really glad that you brought up winthrop jordan <laughs> you know we didn't like just figure this out it's almost like other people figured it out and then um and then we forgot
1: you know for right. a lot of
0: different reasons
1: i think yeah. joanne Mellish would call that the historical amnesia of slavery in in new england um but in the five chapters of your book, uh, you unpack the evolving ideologies and meanings embedded in the terms master and servant. And during really critical cultural moments in early New England's history, and in each of these chapters, you centered the transformations within this, the sphere of what you call the cultural economy of the household. And so for our listeners who aren't as versed in early New England history, why was the household as both a site of spiritual and economic labor and production, so central to the development and ultimately the racialization and gendering of these terms, master and servant.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the the, the Puritan household was this the little Commonwealth model, right? As John Putnam Demo said long ago, or Edmund Morgan and the Puritan family. So, the family and the church and the state were sort of analogous patriarchal institutions um but, so you have that kind of that earthly dimension you know everybody who lived and worked under english governance and that's were conceived primarily as a inmate of one of these patriarchal households. And that was the the kind of primary space. It wasn't just a physical space, but also a conceptual space where everybody's labor was made sort of not just productive, but made meaningful. Um, And, you know, where the each kind of Patriarch of the family moved between their governance of their family and the, their other more public roles, either as a laborer or as a magistrate, or um, you know roles they might have played in the church, and and it, and the the um and then you know that what I was talking about earlier, the, the 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 primary way that Puritans conceived of who they were to God was as a member of His household. So the household itself was a kind of really important uh, structure that kind of linked up the metaphysical and the physical world. And the thing the book kind of charts, I mean, one, so I talk about the economy, cultural economy of the household, which in which a certain kind of obedience was both like the means of productive labor and also the end of it, you know, so that the role of the family was to produce subjects that evinced certain kinds of obedience to, to patriarchal authority. And, you know, within the household, sort of every member of the household was meant in some way to emulate The servant, you know, the the kind of servant personhood, someone who was would would willingly obey. Um, But then the other thing the book kind of charts is and and um, kind of accounts for is how the family changes from this patriarchal structure to more modern version of voluntary filiation and. You know, the the internal structure of the patriarchal family, the father was, the patriarch was father, husband, master. So there was like a strain of mastery within patriarchal authority, even in households that didn't have servants. Um, And um, what happens to that kind of master authority, you know, in the in the more modern model of a kinship family, you know, what, if the master is no longer a kind of required structure upholding the family, like what forms did that, the kind of authority that masters embodied take, Um, you know, and one of the kind of arguments I make is that it's the master kind of authority serves as a sort of conceptual hinge between the family, uh, which becomes like privatized and the public, the the realm of the state and the church. And it's, it's, the the master is kind of most outer facing. And I, and what, what happens is that as, as, um, uh, the, 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 the public gets infused with, um, this authority of the household master, um, and it, you know, it takes it, it, so it becomes externalized sort of as the public, and then also internalized by certain members of the family as their own self mastery. So these are kind of the two, you know, the title of the book is Invisible Masters. So that's partly what the book is, is kind of trying to chart is where you know what are the four? You know, God, the master is the ultimate invisible master. But as mastery takes more ideological forms, what what are they? And they're invisible because they're the public or their um, their whiteness, um, and also because they become a kind of internalized conscious in in this ideal of self mastery.
1: I think this like this kind of building off of what you just said in terms of like the, the the threshold, the, the social relations of of the family and also the ideologies that were bound up in terms of master and servant within these patriarchal households in early New England. It's interesting how you chart specifically in chapter two uh, with the possession of Elizabeth Knapp, the ways in which the threshold of the private and public were crossed in this situation. And specifically using the example of binding out of children, you know, um, in my research, I often will. Compare and contrast the experiences of uh, bound out children based on race, mostly in the post-revolutionary uh, New England context. But for me, you know, understanding this much longer history that you know is is borrowed from from Old English law and practices, but the ways in which that this, um, uh, these competing ideologies of mastery and servant played out in the case of Elizabeth Knapp. Um, there was a really brilliant quote that you offer. Um, in that chapter where you said this this battle was between God, Satan, and Rev- Reverend Samuel Willard over Knapp's body and soul, which ultimately you you argue was a battle over mastery or masters. And so I was hoping that you could talk a bit more about the saga that involved Elizabeth Knapp and what Reverend Samuel Willard's role was in mediating this conflict in, in 17th century New England.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, I mean, it's one of the few, kind of commonplace ways of thinking about how servitude did work in new England. Right. I mean, that, 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 that historiography did acknowledge was the persistence of this putting out system, right. Or binding out um, system where children from um, other families would be bound out as servants into, um, you know, more elite families as, as a, or, you know, Uh, in, in cases where the child was being unruly, you know, uh, they'd be bound out to, to have a master who could, you know, to use the term that they used, look more straightly, you know, to that, to their development. So there were like salutary forms of binding out and there were disciplinary forms of of binding out. Um, and, um, in one of the things that could prompt, uh, a family to have their, to bind out their child, it was uh, unruliness or disobedience and failure to regulate their speech. Um, you know, that, that magistrates um, assumed the role of being able to, to determine that children should be removed from that one family and put in another as a servant. And so to me, that the, the, the kind of laws about binding out um, are one of the ways that the public is infused with the authority of the master, Um, you know, to the the idea of disposing someone to, um, you know, cross the threshold of their family becomes a state function. Um, And in the case of Elizabeth Knapp, we don't know why she was bound out. I mean, I think uh, John Demos it, chapter on nap and entertaining satan where he does this kind of very uh psycho history but deeply archival also kind of recovery of both the 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 um histories of both the nap and willard families sort of suggests several reasons why you know what it might have meant and and why but um but but one thing i learned was um you know that elizabeth Knapp had a cousin in a neighboring town, Watertown. Her name was also Elizabeth Knapp. and um, she was bound out. The cousin had been bound out because she was not governing her tongue, you know to to um, you know use the the term. and so I think I, you know, given what had happened, what the, the form that Knapp's possession takes with this kind of very spectacular performance of an unruly tongue and an unruly voice of ventriloquizing Satan is one element, but also Willer describes like her actual tongue kind of curling to an amazing length out of her mouth, and the townspeople putting their fingers in her mouth to kind of try to regulate her tongue. And, you know, so there's like the, the association of the, the metonym of the tongue as speech, but then there's also this like physical unruliness of the tongue. So the main way I read Nap is to take, to take the form that her possession takes in some ways as evidence of what has caused it. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, and so she's bound out, um, e- even though her father, you know, she would, she, her family wasn't the poorest family. Her father was sort of middling and he was a, uh, a select man in the town. And he, you know, he signs Willard's, con- he's one of the men who signs their hand to Willard's contract. And Willard is like, at that point, a young minister. It's his first, um, Role, his first job, <laughs> um, but nevertheless, she's bound out to his household, so she is um, a servant in his household when when um, when this episode occurs, and that just can't be coincidental.
1: <laughs> it has to be causal. I think, in a lot of ways, too, your reading of Naps. Possession by the devil. Um, and also the difference. It, it, you know, there's this, I think, fixation to think about 1692 and the hysteria that the Salem witchcraft uh, trial uh, unleashed in terms of both um, early New England history and culture, but also just cultural memory. Um, but the ways in which this prior incident, in a lot of ways, involved a lot of the same key players, including Willard and um, in the Mathers. But it's interesting to me how you were able to differentiate this knowledge of governing the tongue was essential to the covenant of obedience in 17th century New England. But at the same time, it was not the same thing as the capital crime of witchcraft, right? So the possession almost excused the inability to govern the tongue. What you know, the 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 afflicted couldn't 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 control themselves, and thus were almost excused for whatever, you know, blasphemy would have come out of their mouths. But it's interesting how you read this demonic possession of Elizabeth Knapp through the lens of mastery and servant, um, and how the master is acting as, I'm sorry, how the devil, rather, is acting as master. And the the example that I I was hoping that you could talk a bit more about uh, was the situation in which she um, is instructed, as she recalls, and as Willard recalls in his narrative, to write her name in Satan's blood book. And when she doesn't know how he takes her hand and guides her. And I just found that that example was so striking to demonstrate all of these different, you know, a a bit more abstract, um, arguments that you're making in the book about the, you know, the, the racialization ultimately, because there is a, a very racial connotation to her possession and what the devil claims, you know, who is inside her, but also the gendering of this and how, um, it connects both the, the visible and the invisible worlds, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean the the the. <sighs> The signing of the devil's book, which is, you know, is a spiritual crisis and is the main kind of point of drama and conflict from Willard's perspective. You know, did she sign it? Did did not? Did she not sign it? You know, and she she confesses to signing it and then she denies that she signed it and then she confesses she signed it and she says the devil wanted her to sign it twice and sometimes she talks back to him and sometimes she doesn't. But at all points, she's you know, she's orienting herself and her account of what is happening in relation to an entity she conceives as a master. And in the signing of the, the book, you know, in the passage that you just read, you know, she she should be taught, you know, how, you know, their the, the literacy and that, that in some sense here, Satan in her account is acting as a good master, right. That he doesn't, he is badgering her and he's on her. You know, it's, it's a question of like, is this consent? It's hard to say, but in, in the, the way that she depicts Satan sort of guiding her hand is, it, it's, it's it, it is, it feels more consensual, almost like a, a fantasy of being able to write, you know, her own name, um, you know, as a sign of, of sort of public authority, you know, the kind that her father had and the kind that Willard had and the kind that she was not at all meant to have, but by kind of, in a sense, uh, you know, Recounting the story of her experience, she gives herself a kind of public authority.
1: Right, and I think that's a interesting thing to think about, both in terms of the ways in which Elizabeth Knapp's life may not be readily known to us had she not strayed from the boundaries, the gen, you know, the gendered boundaries of of women's comportment and the governance of the tongue in seventeenth century New England. Um, but also the ways in which um, it it made the you know the, the possession itself legible you know um, in that she was acting in ways not only in terms of her you know ventriloquism um, and the contortions of her body and the elongation of her tongue, but also I think um, the ways in which it um, allowed for Samuel Willard to insert himself not only as her literal master but as you know the master of this community in terms of his leader his spiritual leadership but also the ways in which you know acting as a servant to god he was guiding her and casting the devil from her it's just it's it's a very interesting and yet um poignant example like i said earlier about a lot of the points that you were making earlier but you know i the one other thing that i i could not help but you know uh recall in terms of this saga was the use of of fear tactics that the devil used which is in line with your examination of servitude and mastery and that like the covenant of obedience required servants to obey their masters in their lawful commands but also if they didn't covenant theology allowed for a level of of punishment or of retribution, right? And so it was interesting, I think, in, in that example, you talk about she, um, the devil offers to do her labor for her, and she says no. And I was just wondering if you could um, recall that scene for our listeners and, and talk about the ways in which you were able to really analyze this through the lens of master and servant,
0: yeah, I mean so it's Willard's perspective, right? So Willard is authoring this narrative and one of the things I argue is that his point of view in the narrative is that of the master that it it kind of prevails, you know, and in and, and that scene that you're talking about is one instance where um that that kind of binds up his his point of view with that of the master so she you know, she um it's Willard sort of remembering that he um, you know asked her to put some chips on the fire um, and she says no so he she's disobeying right but her her story of that is that the, the devil offers to do it for her and she said no to him <laughs> and so um, you know he and and because of that he's he's like not reading her as out of bounds, you know as as his earthly servant. Um, and um, yeah, I mean I, I think the, the, the thing about the nap and the demonic possession is is the way it resonates with with like the Orthodox child, you know the the what she's doing is making visible this work that all, puritans were meant to be doing which was internalizing the will of the master you know obeying from fear and from love you know learning to to kind of synthesize those things to obey any man you know any earthly man as if a father right as and you know to to um internalize that. And I think that the default also of talking about the child as the spiritual ideal, but it's also in in some discourses, like it's specified as the son. You know, the son is the preferred status. And so you know what what are female Puritan supposed to do you know women and girls um you know to make themselves sons and so there's a way of reading satan as a a kind of um embodying a kind of masculine authority you know of a way that perversely saying you know that you are possessed by satan was um something that Puritan theology could account for in terms of women speaking with the kind of authority that Knapp assumes, (laughs) you know, it made it, it it made it legitimate.
1: Right. Um, And in terms of just like rationalizing the, um, the, I mean, it goes back to what you were saying a minute ago, of the governance of the tongue that women in in this instance were to be seen and not heard. Um, But in in that regard, how they could be excused. I mean, it just, it brought me back to so much of the early literature, like Carol Carlson's work and Mary Beth Norton's, and, you know, almost inspired like this buying frenzy of these books, again, to just kind of revisit them. It's been so long, but just to see the ways in which you, um, very innovatively reread these through these lenses of mastery and servitude, both in the visible and invisible realms was quite interesting because I, I think there's just often this tendency to try to understand the ways in which women were, you know, um, moving outside the bounds of proper womanhood. I hate to use that because it's such like a 19th century concept, but, um, to to make sense of this period, or there have been like you know ecological attempts to explain what was going on in Salem with the water and everything, but just to reread it both theologically, but also through this lens of service, um, it was it was just such a, a treat to read. I really enjoyed reading that chapter.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things I hope I do for Nap in the chapter is grant her agency as a kind of cultural producer, not just of witchcraft, right? And where it doesn't just mean witchcraft, but, you know, that um, what she was doing was kind of authorizing herself as a kind of lay, you know, a lay preacher, I not to put it that way, but, you know, where she, she's sort of saying to her, to her, the townspeople at her bedside, you know, don't, don't waste time like I did, you know, the, you know, it's, it's the work ethic, like the devil makes work for idle hands, you know, and, and she in, in that and in, in in herself and her, her, what she able to a, a kind of achieve for herself in the episode is one form of kind of public authority that she has and a lasting impression on the culture. But then I also talk about her influence on Willard's thinking and his, his, his metaphorics of economic morality, you know, his vocabulary, where when you see him preaching later at the third church as, you know, Mark Valeri, so kind of brilliantly illuminates his, his crucial role there in, in innovating these um, you know new forms of vocation and new new um, uh, innovative ways of reconciling piety and commerce um, that you see he, he very often kind of returns to this notion of governing the tongue and the, the symbolism of governing the tongue as um, as a, um, as a sign of, of, you know, whatever you're doing in the mart, you're listening to your minister and <laughs> you know, you're, you're, um, you're obeying, you know, you're obeying God. And, and so I see her lasting influence on him and through him, you know, uh, in, uh, a, a lasting influence on the kind of, um, uh, cultural, um, uh, the symbolism and and language that has gotten recognized by scholars as quote unquote economic.
1: (laughs) I'm wondering if you could share with us, uh, you know, the the process of writing Um, we shared a a moment before the interview where we just kind of reflected on the incredible amount of work, both emotional and intellectual labor that goes into writing um, not only an article or a chapter, but a, a dissertation and then eventually a book. And I was wondering if you could reflect on, uh, you know, the process of writing this book and specifically which of these chapters was your favorite to write or did you find the most pleasure in writing? And if, if you would give us a bit of backstory about the chapters, key themes and also its primary movers and shakers.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the chapter that was the most pleasurable for me to write was the chapter on Mary Rawlinson. Um, chapter three. But the reason why it was the most pleasurable chapter to write for me is completely inseparable from the um, chapter that was the least pleasurable for me to write, which was chapter one. (laughs) So, um, you know, when I went back to the book after, um, I served as chair of my department for a few years, and, and I kind of put my scholarship to the side. And, and then, um, you know, when that term was over, I went on sabbatical and I re- wanted to reconceive the book. And as I think I said earlier, one of the main thing I needed to do was to be able to actually account for the complexity of servant of the Lord and what it meant in covenant theology is various permutations. And, and so in order to do that, I, I read, um, thousands of pages of Puritan sermons by cotton and Thomas Shepard and um, and uh, Thomas Hooker um, and conduct manuals by the theologians that trained them um, William Perkins and William Ames and um, and you know it was hard it was not it wasn't like, You know, sitting down and reading the overstory or something like that. It was, but and and it was hard because you know, servant is a commonplace. Servant of the Lord is everywhere, you know. And so, the work I did for that chapter was to pull out kind of every instance I could find of servant being used, um, and kind of compile them. And and that was the work, basically doing like two 100 page drafts of that chapter alone. And what I did with that material was I, I was able to identify these sort of patterns where the, in those works that I looked at within the big category of servant, certain types recurred. There was the use of the servant to define vocation. So you're called as a servant, you know, you're called as God's servant. Are you called as an earthly servant? don't care you know that's paul paul don't care use it rather to be made to be made free right because you know that, that that servant was pivotal to understanding the doctrine of vocation and other figures you know other types um You know, I don't want to get too into it, but the flip side of vocation, which is this eye servant or hypocrite, the the um, which is a really important figure in the history that I chart of, um, you know, how master um, gets associated with whiteness and um, and spiritualized, you know, that white. Christian man's authority gets spiritualized. So the eye servant is what you weren't supposed to be. You were always supposed to remember um, that you had a master in heaven, even if you were a master. So anyway, there, there were a lot of these types, there's a humiliation, adoption, and then also the parable of the prodigal son, which... Um, you know, we don't often think of as a parable of servants, you know, we think of this parable of the talents, you know, those of us who are raised secular know the story of the prodigal son. But, um, you know, one of the things that defines the prodigal son is that it, he expresses his repentance, he goes and he, he serves for the citizen after he spends his whole portion and he um, he's out feeding swine, and he's starving, and he says, my father, he thinks of his father as a master, my father's servants have bread enough and to spare, you know, my father is a good master to his servants. And then he says, I'll go to him. And I'll say, I, you know, I have sinned, I'm not worthy to be your son, make me your hired servant. And then, of course, when he goes to his father, he starts, he rehe- you know, he's rehearsed that what he's going to say to his father, and he starts to say it, and his father cuts him off. And, you know, you know, he says, "No, you're my son." and he tells his servants, "Go feed and clothe him, you know, cu- kill the calf. And so the the form of repentance is willingness to be a servant. and the form of of forgiveness or mercy is treating your son like a son and your servant like a servant. And so all of these various types that I, I discerned or distilled from this hideous mass of, um, material from those early works. It's kind of, once I had that lens of seeing these types, I, I came to reread, you know, Mary Rawlinson's narrative, which I, you know, read and studied for so long and, and teach so regularly. So I felt very familiar with it. And I, I remember the first time I read it, reread it, you know, to work on the chapter and read it with, with this lens that I had created for myself of these servant types, and I just I saw them everywhere there, and I had never seen them there before, even though I had been working on servitude for a really really long time. And you know, I I, I perceived things in her narrative that I I hadn't totally understood before, and I felt. Like when I saw them in Rawlinson's narrative, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm right about, I'm right about <laughs> these types of servant and their complexity and their various forms. And, and they persisted. And I, I can see Rawlinson using them and then also using them to, to innovate in this way that I argue that she is. So writing that chapter was so pleasurable in part because it 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 was my reward for having slogged through all of that material in chapter 1 and having that pleasure of of like rediscovery and of satisfaction and kind of seeing this whole new world of meaning that I had never seen before.
1: I, I'm wondering if you could give us just a, a bit of a backstory to Rowland's, uh Rollinson's narrative, and for those who might not be as familiar, and um, specifically um, the ways in which your analysis of her well-known captivity narrative among you know scholars of early New England how yours differs, and specifically your very poignant argument that the narrative offers just very striking evidence of the racialization of obedience that starts to you know take hold in turn of the 18th century, New England.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that happened was I was reading, I was reusing the Neil Salisbury, the Bedford edition, you know, as my primary text. And he includes in the back, the contextual documents. um, One of the ones he includes is a list of native children that were bound out to English masters after the war. And, I just kind of had this aha moment of reading Rawlinson's text, you know, in its post war context, right, as um, participating in that project of binding these children out um, and providing a kind of uh, moral and spiritual kind of conduct manual for how English masters should would be okay to treat their servants, you know? And in that sense, I kind of reading her work as, you know, her representation of her captivity as service and mastery across a a cultural divide that's intractable, right? It's not a model of conversion. It's a, a model of basically willing yourself to be obedient to a master who who, um, who will never be like you spiritually or morally. And, you know, that you're for Rawlinson, it's spiritual to learn to obey those masters. But what she teaches is, you know, for to what she teaches these native children is don't run away. you know, Don't run away from your master. When they give you a heavy load, carry it you know, don't just stay in your place, you know, that, that it, it, the same kinds of activities that she renders as spiritual for her become acceptably only moral, you know, for governing non-white students. And that's why I think, you know, the end of her narrative, which is so poignant. I mean, I don't want to reduce her to just kind of propaganda for, um, racializing servitude but I think makes it so powerful is that it is a really emotional document and in there's so much uncontained grief and trauma in it (laughs) too. Um, but you know, at the end in that last chapter where she says, you know, it was, but the other day she, she, she presents this kind of little meditation for her reader, you know, that I would have given, you know, I, I would have, um, (laughs) <laughs> Let me look it up. You know, I would have given anything to be free or, you know, servant to a Christian. And the, the uh, equivalence of being liberated or servant to a Christian, you know, that the, that is the, is the spiritualization of, of white mastery, you know, not that, um, you know, that, that it's, it's shifting the balance, you know, it, it's essentially saying for some servants, you know, for non-white servants in particular, it's enough for you to be servant to a Christian, you know, that, that, that um, and uh, where, and the, the math, and importantly, the, you know, that the, the masters of such, Servants didn't have to worry themselves about the souls of those servants. And it's in that kind of exalting of their own mastery over, in particular, non white servants. That these white Christian men start to compete with God's mastery, <laughs> and um, you know, create these kind of new callings for themselves as masters of non-white servants. That um, you know, that behavior would have been, or that kind of uh, thinking of themselves competing with God's authority, uh, masters' authority, or or um just straight embodying it would have been hypocrisy but here instead it's like a new vocation and and Rawlinson's narrative is, is sort of helping foster that innovation
1: right you know, personally, my favorite chapter of, of your book was, I mean, I enjoyed all of them, but specifically chapter four, just as a, as a, a person who's interested in this very vexed history of, of New England slavery and emancipation. And I mean, chapter four just blew me away. Um, I, I, I was thinking of John Wood Sweet and Richard Bailey's work on religion and race and slavery in early New England. But in a lot of ways, I think that your chapter was one of the most powerfully argued intellectual histories of race and really how... Early New Englanders ironed out the wrinkles in the racialized elements of the term servant and the term slave. I mean, it, we see them used so interchangeably, which thus makes it difficult to, you know, um, accurately identify in terms of their everyday lexicon, what who they mean by the word servant or who they mean by slave. But when you revisit so many of these sermons, like Cotton Mather's various servants, and others, you create this um, this figure of the white master who served. They were a master in in three regards: uh, masters to white servants. They were masters to captive African and indigenous servants or slaves, and they were also Christian servants to God. And you you cite this really um, interesting and and um, then very controversial exchange between two. Boston notable Samuel Sewell, who published The Selling of Joseph, and the Boston enslaver who inspired the writing and publication of that tract, John Saffin, And so, you know, through this, the, your engagement and analysis of their respective responses to one another, but also of other individuals that I mentioned a moment ago, like Cotton Mather and others, um, I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about how African you know, in in their mind, in early 18th century Puritan thought and also economic thought, how could African slavery be reconciled with Christian mastery?
0: Yeah, it's such a tricky question. I mean, even Sewell, right, who kind of overtly says it can't be, says so in such a way that makes it possible for it to be, right? And that he, you know, he... um, He emphasizes the superiority of white indentured servants. He, you know, suggests that, you know, that black servants can't they can't serve in the military. They can't um, have children, you know, with white children. So they can't serve the Commonwealth in that way. I mean, all of this sort of ways that he articulates a racist perspective on African servants, you know, they, they hunger after their forbidden liberty, you know, as he puts it, they'll never be willing servants, sort of all of these reasons he gives why, um, why Africans should not be enslaved actually create like the conditions for the sort of, um, uh, persistence of slavery like the whole computational racial logic that he uses is perfectly compatible with a slaveholding perspective and um, I mean I think people have read the Sewell saffin you know it's often called the debate and of course they debate right I mean the the it isn't wrong to say Sewell is opposed to slavery he is and Saffin sort of says, um, uh um you know slavery is legal for good masters that's what he says right i mean that's one scriptural justification he gives um but here's what they agree about i mean even just the very fact of these two white men having like basically the public authority to dispose of body, the bodies of human beings is itself a kind of form of mastery. You know, they agree in some sense that, um, they're, they're masters, they own this public authority. They, they're, you know, kind of deciding, um, the fates, you know, they've arrogated it upon to themselves, this, this, um, power to, to, um, a providential power in a sense. Um and, and it's this um, you know the the what what their what their narrative and what their debate shows is that like Christian mastery takes more forms than just the legal master, you know, Safin um, you know that it's also uh, kind of assumptions about public authority, and um, you know who who's a fit who's a fit willing servant, who is a subject, who you know who can legitimately carry a, a gun, who, who instead who has to build a road. I mean, all of these kind of assumptions are built into their debate and kind of makes n- makes. It kind of makes their positions from one perspective more similar or congruent than mm. than they might seem facially,
1: right? And it's interesting to read this exchange or this debate. Uh, within the, broad, like, as a, you know, cultural production of its time through the lens of like these laws that you are just referencing in terms of like the New England Black Codes that were passed in the early 18th century, which are, you know, truly having to grapple with the increase in unfree African and indigenous labor in the region, but also to govern the commerce of uh, exporting and importing African and indigenous slaves throughout the Atlantic world. Um and so it's it's at this very moment where I think, in my opinion, your argument and the salience of your argument about this register of servitude and both you know the, the metaphoric idea of connecting the invisible world or the spiritual realm with the, the very tangible physical realm and the economy, like it, this, is really when I think that argument is made the most clearly because this is precisely when New Englanders look to the sea. To I think it's in Wendy Warren's for, for formulation is that um, the you know the Atlantic they look to the Atlantic to fulfill these requirements because these ideas or the the Weber thesis it, it it just doesn't ring true. I mean, and even the actions of late seventeenth, early eighteenth century New Englanders demonstrates that there is this you know, steadfast commitment to the use of unfree African and indigenous labor to build this acclaimed city upon a hill. And I think for me, in that chapter, by going through the sermons of, of Mather and also these, you know, the debate between Safin and Sewell, this idea is really spelled out the most clearly um, in which, you know, servitude and economic profit were the most, you uh, demonstrably, uh, important aspects of, of Puritan life at this time, if, th- if that makes sense.
0: Yes. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And, um, I mean, I, I, the laws, you know, sort of encode, um, you know, a lot of these sort of, um, and provide various kind of ways of earthly din- discipline that correlate to these spiritual ideas of, you know, of willing service as a kind of liberty. And, you know, what, what Sewell and Saffin and Mather, you know, one of the main thrusts of all of their work is to say, like, they're, one of the differences between white servants and non-white servants is in all this literature is that there is no legitimate disobedience of a white master for a non-white servant, you know, that there's this ideal of Christian or spiritual liberty for white servants where, you know, they can be one deputized to sort of correct Masters who act as tyrants or, you know, who otherwise aren't kind of like fulfilling all of the Christian um, dictates for their vocation um, and then can also um, lawfully disobey a command that is uh, not congruent with God's will. You know, white servants were enabled to do that. But what you get in... Um, in all of these uh, texts is, is the sort of racialization of legitimate disobedience and with it, the racialization of, of liberty, of freedom, you know? Um, And I think that's the kind of, uh, a really powerful legacy of that period in New England culture for thinking about race how it functions in our culture today. Um, you know, that, that uh, the kind of assumption of who merits freedom, you know, who, <laughs> whose resistance is legitimate and whose is criminal. Um, you know, you, you see it in the, there's kind of assumptions of this period as they, you know, they did, you know, a mather, you know, Mather, you can see the this making of these new ideas of mastery in the decade between these two sermons by Cotton Mather, um, "Good Master, Well Served" in 1696, in which the the presumption is the servant is white. You know, in the first, it's like 55 pages, and then the first 50 pages of it, it he's referring to white st- servants. And we know this because in the last four pages, he turns to address, you know, enslaved um black servants and so that's how we know it's racialized in the first part (laughs) and the different ways that he addresses them and the different rules that he gives for both what obedience looks like and also what authority looks like and those um, really show the roots of, um, uh, of modern racism Um, And then in 1706, with the Negro Christianized, you get this sort of full, it's a conduct manual for masters of enslaved peoples of African descent. And, um, you know, that is, that is innovative. That is, uh, you know, when Mather does that, he's, it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be abolished. It's central to their culture. I mean, even if, you know, even if there are relatively few um enslaved peoples in New England relative to other colonies um and places in the Atlantic, I think John Wood Sweet points this out. I mean, that any, you know, any shift in the number of them would have a massive cultural effect. Um and and um And I just think because of the absolute centrality to Puritans of this uh, idea of themselves as servants, that is absolutely central to their thinking about who they are to God, that the, the racialization of earthly servitude is mutually and reciprocally shaping this idea of what is spiritual and what is moral. And so, um, you know, even if racial bound labor was quote unquote marginal to the economy, it's absolutely central to its economic culture.
1: I mean, I would even make the argument that to, to cast it as marginal Serves the um, ideological purpose of othering or diminishing the importance of indigenous and African captive labor to the creation of the New England economy, and I think to kind of revisit Winthrop Jordan earlier, that's precisely the line of argument that they would use. Number one, the you know the small scale nature of it makes it much harder to seriously look into, which I think, as you know, those of us who have been working on it in past generations have discovered that there's not this collective archive, such as the WPA narratives for the study of the South, for example, we have to go into towns and different, you know, town meeting records, uh, wills and probate records, church records, just they're very diffuse in terms of their nature. But with that being said, also, it it, it almost allows for uh, the Ability to to gloss over this history because it's it was so quote unquote marginal and once you really begin to peel the layers of this very complicated history, it, it's made manifest that it was anything but marginal to the economy and that the the labor of unfree captives was so central. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I've discovered in looking into enslaved women's lives um, specifically is that um, the ability to concentrate one's labor on the you know the Professionalization of artists and trades, for example. It was contingent upon the ability to put you know the expectation or for the requirements of domestic labor to be fulfilled by enslaved women and also, you know, women and other dependents within the household. And so this march towards progress or in the, you know, the classic formation of formulation rather of um the transition from a subsistence to a market-based society in the post-revolutionary moment, which as your book demonstrates is the New England almost from its essence was a capitalist society. Um, the, the ability to focus labor and to, um, create this market economy was very much bound up in the labors of enslaved women and men, uh, throughout the region. But, one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, in addition to what you know you're you're working on now, is um, what what you hope the biggest takeaways uh, readers of Invisible Masters will have when they set the book down.
0: Well, the main thing I hope is that they never think about the work ethic the same way again, <laughs> yeah, and will understand that it emerges from racial slavery. So, I mean, thinking about um, you know all of the um, all of the qualities that get associated with the work ethic as a dominant kind of American um, labor ideology. I think if we credit Puritan New England with quote unquote, you know, inventing it (laughs) as has long been thought, then we have to understand the role of, of racial slavery to its formation. And, And that's kind of one of the big arguments that the book, makes, um, is that it it does emerges from there. Um, I think also, the just centrality of ideas and types of master and servant personhood that formed Um, ideas about personhood, about authority, and who has legitimate authority, and who should obey that that these ideas um, were essential to the kind of lived experience of all people, not just people who were masters and servants. And so, um, you know, if we think about kind of uh you know modern forms of personhood that emerge that they that these discourses of master and servant are are absolutely essential to those the idea of the self-mastering man you know if you associate ben franklin with with um you know that kind of modern personhood well the idea of self-mastering comes from ideas about how to master others that were were changed by um by mastering non-white people. And, um, and then finally, I, and we talked about this earlier, but, but I do hope that the book will serve as a kind of resource for scholars who work in later fields or even, you know, in the earlier fields too, who aren't as conversant with Christian theology that, um, that I do provide a kind of useful way to, weigh into that theology that is relevant to thinking through, you know, how Christianity makes race, class, um, gender, and, and also age, um, which is another kind of category of identity that's that's forged in these discourses.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me to speak about your book. It's been such a pleasure sharing the afternoon with you and learning more about your work and also just the very complicated yet fascinating world that was early New England.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Jared. It's a pleasure to talk to someone who um, agrees with me that that is so. Hopefully we've won a couple more converts.
1: (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.